Welcome to Right Spokane Perspective with your host, Tim. And Shannon. It's opinion, fact, information, and your alert system. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Right Spokane Perspective. It's Whack-A-Mole or a Farmer this Wednesday episode on Right Spokane Perspective. We're going to do a little bit of inspiration and then we're going to jump into a conversation with a, a guest writer, opinion writer, journalist, and Sulani Madsen talking about things going on in the state legislature. That inspiration. We're going to live to serve. After 10-year-old Chelsea received an elaborate art set, she discovered that God used art to help her feel better when she was sad. When she found out some kids didn't have art supplies readily available, she wanted to help them. So when it was time for her birthday party, she asked her friends not to bring her gifts. Instead, she invited them to donate art supplies and help fill boxes for children in need. Later, with her family's help, she started Chelsea's charity. She began asking more people to help her fill boxes so she could help more kids. She even taught art classes to groups who had received her boxes. After a local newscaster interviewed Chelsea, people started donating supplies from all over the country. As Chelsea's charity continues sending art supplies internationally, this young girl is demonstrating how God can use us when we're willing to live and serve others. Chelsea's compassion and willingness to share reflects the heart of a faithful steward. The Apostle Peter encourages all believers in Jesus to be faithful stewards as they love each other deeply by sharing the resources and talents God has given them. Our small acts of love can inspire others to join us in giving. God can even rally supporters to serve alongside us. As we rely on Him, we can live to serve and give Him the glory He deserves. Faithful Father, please give us all we need to serve you by loving others with our words and our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was certainly some, I would say, appropriate inspiration because being good and faithful servants, the the inspiration also talked about being good stewards. And we're going to talk about a lot of stewards today. There are farmers, the landowners, the people that are preserving the crops, the food production for future generations. And we have Sulani Madsen on today from a spokesman review columnist who wrote an opinion piece called Riparian Stories Bipartisan Twist at a Dead End. And it sounds like the government wants to whack a mole, give us lectures on salmon, and tell our farmers to start cutting their crops and other things differently. So Sulani, jump into this conversation here and let us know what your opinion piece was about and what the state legislature is doing that might not be so good for food production. Well, this was supposed to be the week that I got to write a good news story about a piece of legislation that had been worked out and that everybody agreed on and it was just going to slide through and and unfortunately it didn't. So House Bill 1720 uh, replaced, it was a replacement for a bill that Jay Inslee requested last session. And Inslee's bill was presented to the legislature as the solution to salmon habitat restoration. It had been developed without him even discussing the impact on agriculture with his own Department of Agriculture, with with his own cabinet department. It was totally one-sided. It was all about salmon and had no consideration for ag interests. And I had written a column uh, a year ago that was titled Ag Interests Left Out in Formulating Riparian Bill, and I had really slammed that bill. And what it did was it, it would have put a mandatory one-size-fits-all buffer across the entire state. And we all know that the, uh, the riparian conditions in Grant County are, are just like they are 
in uh, King County. That, that, and I'm being <laughs> well, that's so, right. Yes, because King County grows. Oh, wait, King County really doesn't grow anything. But Grant well, County. Not anymore. It used to, but. Well, it used to. Well, I don't think the politics would allow them to grow anything. And, and you know, this story you're talking about with this legislation seems as short sighted as if they were just to say, well, we had this discussion over a couple decades and we've just decided we're going to tear out the dams because the legislature thought we got enough discussion right. done. We're just going to do it. When really the damages to things like the bill uh, last year, House Bill 1838, requested by the governor, had big drawbacks. So tell us a little bit about that and why there needed to be a fix with House Bill 1720 that is now on the table this year. Well, it was just such a bad bill that there was a, there were a group of legislators that recognized that this was an issue that needs to be faced. It's one where there's lots of different points of view, lots of interests, and two Democrats and two Republicans got together and worked really hard to make sure that everybody got to the table. It was that there were the tribes that were concerned about salmon and fishing, as well as all the ag interests. Everybody was there. And they started the discussion by saying, okay, so that bill from last year, that bill's dead. We're starting from scratch. And that really irritated the representative who was there from the governor's office. And then this whole working group, they they worked really hard. They came up with a bill. They talked to everybody on the Ag and Natural Resources Committee. It went out of that committee with 11 to Oh, support, huge support from all sorts of stakeholders, except for the only one testifying in opposition was the representative from the governor's office. And as I was talking with some folks behind the scenes who couldn't go on record for various reasons, the governor was described as basically going berserk over this. I mean, there was big ego stuff going on here. It wasn't his bill. He didn't get to put his name on it. He, he wasn't the one that brokered it. He didn't get to have his way. And by the time so it went through its first committee and then it gets to the House Capital Budget Committee and it was there again, there was all this testimony in favor of how this was this was a good bill. It should be passed. Just like it said, everybody didn't get what they wanted, but farmers got a lot of stuff they wanted. They got local control of a voluntary program. It was going to work. Governor's office was still opposed. Governor's office was putting pressure behind the scenes and it was pulled off the docket for the executive session for the House Capital Budget Committee, which means it died there. Really so, so, now, so now basically what's occurred is that because of this bill, like many other bills that the legislature has supposedly been working on to solve problems, like major problems like crime, when we're talking about the police pursuit bills, when we're talking about drug possession bills, things that we're, we're having major problems in the urban areas, most people might know about those issues, but they don't know what our agricultural communities in eastern Washington are dealing with. And we produce a lot of food in this state that gets sent all around the world to feed people. And it's our farmers creating them. And of course, this bill, I want to quote from your piece, because I think it's important to put perspective behind some things like this. So protecting private property rights and restoring riparian habitat for the benefit of salmon do not have to be mutually exclusive, said co-sponsor Representative Joel Kretz from Wakanda. As a result of bipartisan work and trust, we have arrived at a proposal that is voluntary rather than regulatory. This is a win for salmon recovery and restoration, and it's a win for farmers, ranchers, and private property owners who want to see riparian improvements on their land. Absolutely. and But it wasn't a win for the governor, and he was petulant, and I was particularly actually angry when I wrote this because I had gotten this all written, and then the day that I'm writing this is the day I'm going to find out if it makes it out of committee to go to the floor for de debate and a vote. 
and it got pulled. So the way, the, it, the way that, this gets pulled, so folks understand that, it gets pulled from, because the, the party in control at this point in time is the Democrat Party. They have the House, the Senate, and the, the governor's mansion. And so I would say maybe the governor and the Department of Ecology, maybe the governor himself is angry about it because he's being led by agency bureaucrats that don't want to see any change, any solution for the farming community. And so they tell their political partisans, hey, you're the lead of this committee. You kill this bill now. Don't let it get heard. And that's what happens, right? Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't look up, maybe because I just don't want to be forced to write to him. I didn't look up who's the Democrat majority chair of the House Capital Budget Committee, but that's the person who had final control over the bill. And and, and this was changing, and- <laughs> really, a program that was not voluntary. It wasn't something that really was targeted to help a certain specific group of farmers it really kind of went after everybody and so having it voluntary made it to where people if they saw the the need for it and there needed to be riparian solutions on their property they could but for others that are distant from the problem they didn't have to be forced into this regulatory mess well, and the thing is that the what was appropriate for riparian protection would be determined in consultation with local local conservation districts and a local board made up of people from the tribes in the area and from farmers in the area and the conservation districts. They would decide, you know, hey, in our area, this is what we need to do. So local control rather than a bureaucrat from control. Olympia. Right. It was local control. And what he really objected to is that his people from the agencies didn't get to be on those boards and have a veto vote on a a consensus process. I mean, and a consensus process is hard. That means everybody's going to have to give a little and and you come up with something that's probably going to work for everybody most of the time. It seems to me though, Sulani. It's poison. Well, it's poison because they're never going to agree. You don't have consensus. They're going to bring all sorts of, you know, as you jokingly said, that all of the King County farmers, you know, wanted to be involved in this as much as uh, what Grant County. So there's not a whole lot of King County farmers. The King County farmers are the ones that are growing state government. And I was going to say that in my lifetime, actually just half of my lifetime, state government has more than doubled in size and cost. And by having this central control, we're not only just paying for state government to grow, but we're growing state government's carbon footprint because they're going to have to travel to the, all these local communities to control localities when we already have infrastructure in place for local communities to handle issues that are local. And it sounded right. like this and- 1720 bill did that. And the governor's uh, administration is demanding that the, it be top-down control from the bureaucracies in Olympia. Right. They wanted to set some minimum distance would apply everywhere. And they wanted agency staff to have a, to have a vote in a consensus process when they don't have any skin in the game. They're not, they don't own and operate the land. They aren't part of a tribal council trying to do the best thing by their land. They aren't part of an agricultural operation trying to stay in, stay in operation. And while I got, I have to push back a little bit on the King County farm. King County does have farms, a lot of smaller farms now because they've so much has gotten uh, built up, but, but it's different. And that's the point is that the water conditions vary where you, if you've got 10 inches a year or you've got 50 or 60 inches a year, you're going to have different 
conditions, and you right. got to well, have different kind of decision making. Well, in King County is the the one of the rainiest locations in the country. We we talk about dry farmers, and you think about right. you know the West Plains. So you think about when you go down to the Palouse. These are dry farmers that have very limited access to water. When they do have water, it's scarce. They use a lot more wells. Whereas on the west side, they just throw seeds out, do some tilling, and <laughs> booyah, you got food. But we yeah, the point is that we have a we have the most geographically diverse state in the in the country. If you were to uh, take a rectangle the size of Washington and try to put it any place, actually, I, I think I read a National Geographic once, put it any place on the world and find as much geographic diversity as we have in that same rectangle. It, this is the place where you do it. You got everything from the rainforest to the desert. And, um, and we're farming so in we, the desert. We can't, we can't do one size fits all. We needed to have the local control. And this was killed by a governor that wants top down control and somehow cannot fathom that there is that kind of diversity across here that that you have to adapt land management to the actual location of the land. Yeah. Uh, and it, it was a showdown between executive and legislative branches. This is who's got the power. This there were some legislators, and I give credit to uh, Mike Chapman and Deborah Lakanoff from the Democrats who were part of this team of putting this together with Joel Kretz and Tom Dent for stepping in as legislators and doing that hard work we expect of the legislative branch, which is to get a bunch of people, have to talk this stuff out and agree on things they don't necessarily and, and, agree and, on all of it. And then get 147, a majority of the 147, yeah. to put a bill into place that solves problems for people in the state. And they just couldn't get it done because the governor's bureaucracy decided to be tyrannical. Yep. Well, you know, we're going to have to postpone the rest of this conversation because we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to be right back with, again, columnist uh, from the Spokesman Review, Sulani Madsen. We're going to talk about parental rights. We're talking about family involvement with the raising of children. And if we have any ammo left at the end of that, we'll be talking about gun control issues. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Right Spokane Perspective on Whack-A-Mole or a Farmer this Wednesday. Sounds like the state legislature is looking at whacking parental rights and possibly some gun owners' rights in this legislative session. And these are issues that Sulani Madsen from the Spokesman Review, a columnist, has talked about, written about, and been engaged with. So Sulani, jump right back into the conversation here. Tell us a little bit about this parental issue that you've come across. Well, I think we're all familiar with uh, with some of the arguments that have been coming up with parents who have objected to school curriculum, who objected to the state stepping in and saying they know best. And, and that's how we've usually discussed those issues. It was brought to my attention, and I've now gotten involved with uh, a woman who has a different kind of parental rights issue. And it, it exemplifies how the state's attitude is the technocrats know best. The experts know best and the parents do not. She is the parent of a child who is severely mentally ill. This child is 10 months from turning 18 and is a good foot taller than her and outweighs her and has been described by his own family physician as sociopathic, psychopathic, and sadistic. And his mother knows this. And his mother has been trying for his entire life to get him help and has done everything she possibly could. So here she's been trying to find help. She's been through various state programs. And now she's starting to see parallels between herself and Nancy Lanza, who was the mother of the shooter at Sandy Hook Elementary. Nancy Lanza's son shot his mother, then went to Sandy Hook Elementary. That boy had all the signs there that there was a problem. Well, and he was not yet 18. 
He was not yet eighteen. So, so you're talking about you're talking about another child that's going to turn eighteen. And to me, I don't want to just assume, but the direction this is going is a mother thinking the state system thinks it's going to gain control of this child in this situation, and then I have to wait for the news story to come out. Well, and here's the weird twist to that one is that. She's ready to say, I we can't do this and, and I can't take him home. I can't be alone with him for five minutes. And the state is saying, oh, because we have you on record as being a good mother, we have to send the child home for you because that's what's best for the child. They're not listening to the parents. It's equally wrong for the state to not listen to parents who are advocating for their children who need to just learn to read and need a good curriculum to learn to read as it is to not listen to a parent who says, I live with this child and I know he is this troubled. It's a, it's a whole attitude that I'm seeing as I write this story about Julia and her issues with children's mental health. It's another side of that same, the parents don't know what's going on. You don't know what your child needs to be taught. We need to, we need to tell your child all these things about sexual health because we think this is important when that may be counter to that parent's values. Right. Well, you have one bureaucracy on one side, and and I actually heard it a few years back, more than a few years back, when I was over lobbying for child care providers and parents and families to have options in child care. I heard a high-level bureaucrat, third in command of the agency, talking to another colleague. The state isn't going far enough, and it was her opinion that people should have to have a college degree to even have the right to have children. And so I thought, wow, these people are seriously tyrannical. And then I learned more about the the education pieces and how you kind of hand your child over to the public schools. And we saw at the federal level, basically labeling parents that wanted some controls over what was taught in school, labeled domestic terrorists. And now you've got a woman who has what they might consider in the future a domestic terrorist if he's out in the public and becomes violent. Now they're saying, no, this isn't our problem. This is your problem. We're not going to get involved, but they want to be involved everywhere else. Right. And that's what's that is particularly frustrating because it's it's the state taking on the wrong role. You know, yes, there are abusive parents and there's a place for protecting children. But if the state is assuming that all parents don't know what they're doing and we're not going to listen to them, then not only do you miss out on the really positive interactions with parents, but you miss out on some children that seriously need help. When the parent tells you they need help, you got to listen to them. And, and it plays into what Joel's Law does. So one of the last things that they, they gave her was a copy of Joel's Law, which is a it allows somebody to file to basically on on anyone that's a, a close relative to say, hey, mental health provider has said that this person is okay, but we, the family, say he's not. This can end up leading to involuntary confinement. It can, although it's really, it's a really difficult path to do that. And so the bottom line is we really need to have a conversation about what do we do? How do we care for respectfully as because everyone, humans are a child of God. How do we respectfully care for someone who is or is potentially a violent sexual predator, a violent predator is, is cannot be in society without risk well, to the it rest seems, of society. It seems like we're having that discussion a lot lately in the news. We're just never getting down to, and well, in politics. Politics too. It seems like these politicians and the agencies that are greatly rewarded with lots of tax dollars, they're confounded by all of these ideas that there are things they're supposed to be handling around like mental health and homelessness. We wonder why, why is there so many people downtown screaming at the sky and ripping their clothes off in the middle of the street and things like that? I, I have to go back where we you know shut down big portions of our 
mental health hospitals where people resided. Granted, there was some bad situations that happened in different places, but that doesn't mean you just destroy the whole system. It seems like we've done that. And now I know that with the homeless issue, there's a lot of drug-induced mental illness, but there are truly people that were released or never entered into the mental health hospital system because they shut a lot of it down. And so we have people that are dangerously mentally ill, just wandering the streets like this young man that she doesn't want to be left alone with this child because this child is violent. Well, if the violent situation happens and the courts say, oh, well, we're going to, you know, domestic violence occurred, you can't go home for 30 days, where does this child go? So there has to be a discussion about this, but it seems like policymakers are saying, no, just just let them stay out on the streets. You know, there's got to be a housing program we can put them into. And of course, then you just move the problem to a different community. Uh, into a different neighborhood, if you will. Now we've got police that have got to be mental health professionals because the state mental health system's not handling it. Right. And it's it's my frustration with, and it kind of segues into the topic you wanted to touch on. It, it segues into the, the uh, gun control bills because you can pass all, all the rules you want. It doesn't get at anything of the root cause. Right. Hold, hold, on just, violent behavior. hold on just one second before we move off into the gun control issue, because didn't you write a sub stack on the parental issue? Well, I did. Thank you for reminding me. I wanted to let people know if you look at sulanimadson.substack.com, you can Google my name on there. You can find links to the most recent column and commentary piece, which is all the signs were there. And I have a full length, a little bit over an hour interview with Julia Malcolm about her interactions with Child Protective Services over trying to find uh, the right place for her son to be as well as the the column that I wrote on that in a much shorter version. So Okay, um, so that's Sulani Madsen dot substack dot com. Okay, Sulani Madsen. That's M A D S E N dot substack.com. Yes. Okay. And Julia really wants to, she wants to advance this conversation in in society that we really face into the fact that we have people who are violent and we need to figure out how are we going to care for them and protect society in a way that is respectful, secure, and effective. Yeah. And, 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 and that is really right there, that whole principle that moves into, and people can look this up too, it's principles, emotions, and practicality collide over gun control issues because that's the debate that we all keep having. How do we keep our community safe with the mental health? Obviously, it's get them the mental health services they need. And if that is some isolation, maybe containment where they're not just wandering the streets screaming at this guy or creating violent situations in public. Same thing with gun control. How do we deal with that appropriately? I have a handful of articles actually from the Spokesman Review just in the last couple of weeks that we're going to be covering. And some of this has to do with shootings and killings. And it acts like, well, this is a gun control issue. No, it's not. In most cases, these folks are not legally supposed to have firearms already. It becomes an issue of law enforcement dealing with the criminals we already have, not going after lawfully law-abiding citizens. Right. I don't see that the the gun control bills that uh, A.G. Ferguson has been suggesting this year has, is pushing through this year. I don't see them having any practical impact, quite honestly, on the kinds of violence that we're most afraid of. People who are already following the gun laws aren't the problem. The access to a particular tool is not the way to control the violent behavior. The violent behavior will still exist. And I, I guarantee you, if you just took all the guns out of society right now, there would still be violence. I mean, Cain and Abel, all it took was a rock. rock. I mean, humans right. will find a weapon, 
right? And, well, and, and, and they found that weapon over in, in Europe. The, they've restricted the guns, but violence with other tools like knives. And so they were talking about knife bans over in, in certain places in Europe because the gun bans didn't stop the violence. Well, and it really right. makes so, me wonder, you know, how many of those situations that we're seeing of underage children that are getting access to guns, if their parents aren't aren't in the same situation like Malcolm is, and it just isn't being reported. Malcolm just happened to go ahead and decide that she was going to come forth with the information, and these other parents just the, the police report gets taken, but the information doesn't go anywhere from there. Well, and if they have violent tendencies and they're about to become an adult or they're an adult, whether they've been a felon or a criminal, they'll find some kind of weapon just like two weeks ago or three weeks ago, the guy that was downtown, I believe it was between two people. Obviously there was some mental illness involved or drug addiction and he stabbed the guy in the chest three times, but he had already been in jail for similar violent crimes, but he's only going to serve three months for stabbing someone in the chest three times. I think maybe a little bit longer of a sentence might help keep the community safe. And instead, maybe we should talk about knife control. That's the the, the idea that's coming out of the legislature right now. Well, I think it kind of goes back to, to the agencies. I'm in reading Tulani's article, it comes down to the bottom where it says, Nancy Gutierrez, communications administrator for the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, had said that basically the protocol for children like Mrs. Malcolm's son, who are a danger to the parents, children posing a danger to a parent would be an issue handled by law enforcement or community mental health resources. However, we offer family voluntary services, a program which allows parents and guardians to engage voluntarily in services that improve their protective capabilities to meet the safety, health, and well-being of needs of children and youth. But the problem is, is basically they're just kicking the can to the other agencies. And And the other other agencies' hands are tied, so they can't do anything about it either. Right. And in the Substack, uh, in the interview that's posted on the Substack, I asked Julia specifically about the what some of those programs are. And, you know, and she describes them. And it, it seemed fairly obvious to most people that some program that for five weeks, somebody visits the house once a week for an hour is not really going to have a significant change in anybody's behavior. Now, probably the position that she's in, she would view that as a vel- welfare check to make sure she's still alive. Yeah. I mean- and she's tried cooperated. She's been cooperative and she's been been trying those things but yeah on the on the gun control bills they're just they're not really getting at they're just attacking a symptom and a tool and they're not getting at what's what the problem is well they're they're not even using now i've got to go back to one of our conversations we've had before because they've controlled the language they've they've decided that they have a different language they're going to use and so like with house bill 1240 it's another run at assault weapons well, what is an assault weapon? If, if you put that phrase and that word, it doesn't mean a gun. They talk about assault weapons being semi-automatic rifles. Well, that's every single rifle produced in America pretty much. Well, most people don't know what semi-automatic means, and it really it sounds scary if you don't know anything about guns. But it's just that's just what guns do. So it's like, well, it's and it's and it's the way guns have been designed for farmers, ranchers, hunters for around a hundred or more years. This is not new technology, but they really want to point to the scary guns that don't have wooden stocks. They're composite. They're black. They they look like they have accessories on them because we live in a world of accessories. But it doesn't make them any more or less lethal. They, they talk about uh, high capacity guns. They talk about high powered rifles and they're talking about two, two, three rifles really in a lot of this. It's not a high powered rifle. It's 
barely over a 22 caliber that you would not use for hunting. It's a small you know, I plinking just, gun. Yeah, I just I just went to a uh, actually to a handgun safety class, and one of the one of the a couple of the interesting statistics is one is that yes, Americans own a lot of guns. Eighty five percent of them have never been fired, and, and only one percent have had more than a hundred rounds. Most people we collect them, but we don't. They're not as uh, the the numbers are not as as scary as they get made out to be. Well, and, and I'll have to use this analogy to make it less scary. I think more than most any country in the world. World, Americans own fire extinguishers. Most of them never get used, but Americans are best equipped to stop a problem if one occurs with, well, a fire extinguisher or a firearm. So it, it's not the, it's like any other tool. There's a lot of tools that men buy specifically. I mean, we, this is something that women can blame men for. We buy tools that we only need to use once or twice in our lifetimes, but we still store it in the garage just in case we ever need to use it. And it's the same kind of thing, right? Uh, yeah. That's an, that's an interesting way to put it. I mostly, I just would like us to have conversations about root causes instead of symptoms and tools, because I know from, from briefings I've been in as part of disaster teams and, and, and over the years that there are some much scarier tools out there and I really just assume not have to deal with them. Right. Exactly. Well, there's vehicles, obviously. There's cases where people use vehicles as weapons. There's lots of, you know, evil people will do evil things regardless of the tools that are available. They'll use something else. So I want to thank you for your time because these are important topics. And I think that one of the tools that we have in our I would say holster would be our cell phones and it gives us access to the internet. It gives us access to text messaging and we can contact our legislature. We can get on ledge.wa.gov and go ahead and notify our representatives about how we feel about the, some of the bills that we talked about today, gun control, parental rights, government's failure in dealing with mental health issues. So all that being said, thank you, Sulani Madsen. We will have you back again because I know there's some more topics that we've got to cover, but we've got to go for today. So folks, we'll be talking to you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Good night.